Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. This here is a clip from a sermon uh, that Billy Graham preached in about 1957. It was a huge stadium packed with people who came to hear Billy preach. And here is some of what he said. Repentance means that you acknowledge that you failed God, that you sinned against God, and you're willing to renounce your sins. You're willing to give up your sins. And it means something else. It means that by faith you must receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must come to the foot of the cross and by an act of your will choose Christ. Say, I will receive him. I will give my life to him. I will surrender to him. I will receive him as my Lord and Savior and Master. And some of you may wait beyond the time when the Spirit of God speaks to you because you see you cannot come to Christ any time you want to. You can only come when the Spirit of God is drawing you and pulling you and speaking to you. And the Spirit of God is speaking to you tonight. The Spirit of God is speaking to thousands of you. And that's the only time you can come to Christ when the Spirit of God draws you to the cross. Don't you hesitate. Don't you wait. You may never be this close to the kingdom of God again. So, you know, it's interesting. There was a time in our culture when you could get thousands of people into a stadium to hear a famous preacher who would, like, yell at you to repent and explain what repentance means. And he would warn you that lots of, lots of you who think that you're really, you know, good with Jesus, you're actually not. And you need to make a decision tonight because... After tonight, it might be too late. This might be your only opportunity to turn and to come to Jesus. Can you believe people would come and hear that? I feel like the culture has changed a bit since those days. Do you, do you agree with me on that? Like, things have changed, okay? And, but there was a time and a place for that. In fact, it, some people estimate that something like 2.2 million people like either committed or recommitted their lives to Jesus through the teaching of Billy Graham. And so in some ways, Billy Graham has kind of become the paradigm for the evangelist. Now kids, an evangelist is what we would call a person who tells other people about Jesus. And evangelist has in it this this root word, this Greek word that literally means good news. And so an evangelist is someone who communicates the good news of Jesus. And, and it's where that root word is where we get words like evangelist, evangelism, evangelical. And it's interesting, you know, with all due respect to Billy Graham, Scripture doesn't actually tell us how the gospel must be shared. You know, we know that there is such a thing as, evan- uh, as evangelists. We know that there are such a thing as um, there's such a thing as evangelism. But we're not explicitly told what evangel what form it's supposed to take in every situation. Even though Billy Graham has kind of become this paradigm for for evangelism, and, and it's, you know, you might wonder, like, what if, what if you're not as articulate or as bold as a Billy Graham? Like, can you even share the gospel? Does it count? You know, like, should you even try? And I wrestled with this a lot when I was a young Christian. Like, I, I was taught that every Christian is an evangelist. It's just that some of us are cowards. In fact, it was deeply ingrained in me that I may be the only Bible that a person ever reads. And for that reason, 
I need to make the most of every opportunity. And if I can, uh, if I have an opportunity when I'm with a person who doesn't know Jesus, I need to tell them about Jesus in that moment because they may never have another chance. And so I had a ton of anxiety and stress about it. In fact, I filled journals with, with, with prayers that God would send someone else to my friends and to my family because I didn't think that I could do it. There was even a time when going out in public gave me anxiety because I might at any moment, you know, be face to face with a, a waiter or a cashier or a bus driver. And I would feel like it's my responsibility to convince them that they're on their way to hell. And this moment might be their only moment to escape that, that destiny. And I felt like it was my responsibility to communicate that. Like that's on my shoulders. You know, that's, it's my responsibility. If it doesn't work, if they don't come to Jesus, maybe it's my fault. And that did not feel like good news. You know, that felt coercive. It felt manipulative. It felt disrespectful, a little bit dehumanizing. It felt like a sale. And today, I'm happy to tell you that that has all changed for me. Today, I approach sharing the good news of Jesus much less like what I thought an evangelist was and much more like an ambassador. Now, that's an ambassador. That's certainly how the Apostle Paul saw himself. He said in Ephesians 6, Pray for me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. And in in 2 Corinthians, the apostle actually makes the suggestion that all Christians are ambassadors. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And you might wonder, well, what's the difference between an ambassador and an evangelist? Like, aren't, aren't these actually just the same thing? What, what, what actual practical difference would it make to see yourself as more of an ambassador than an, than an evangelist? Well, actually, quite a bit. And, and, and that's what we need to talk about today. What difference would it make for the church if we saw ourselves more like ambassadors than as evangelists? Well, this morning we're continuing through our series called Woes, Seven Things the Church Must Stop Doing Altogether. And each of these weeks, Jesus warns the religious leaders called the scribes and Pharisees uh, about something that they're doing wrong that's very, very serious. And he announces, woe to you because of this thing. And what we're seeing is that the church in our culture can learn some lessons from these warnings that Jesus gives. Now, last time the Pharisees, we saw had, they had been dividing God's people. We saw that even though the church has scars and joint pains, and, and even though we've lost a few limbs, Jesus doesn't turn the body away. We are one. We are the body of Jesus, uh, warts and scars and all. We belong to him. Well, this morning we're heading into this study of the second woe, which in some ways is kind of a lesson in mission. It's a bit of a lesson in making God known. And here in this woe, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Okay, some versions say twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, kids, if you don't know... Here's what a convert is. A convert is a person who had one set of beliefs, one set of values, and then they have a, a major shift and things change, and then they 
they, now they've committed their whole life to a new set of beliefs and values. And a Christian convert is someone who has committed their life to Jesus Christ and has received new life through him because now they're a convert to Jesus. But it's interesting, you know, in those days, the Pharisees had converts too. In fact, the Pharisees were active missionaries and, and the, the, the process of conversion for a Pharisee was actually quite a process. And not a ton of study has been done into what this process looks like, but we've actually come to learn a little more recently through the work of a scholar from Wheaton, and I found super helpful. Listen to this. This is the process of conversion for a Pharisee. And when we're done, tell me if you think you'd make a good Pharisee, okay? So here's how it begins. You imagine the Pharisees, they're out on a mission trip, and they come across somebody who's interested in becoming a Pharisee, okay? Now, they already have to be a Jew, that's their starting point. But the Pharisees would bring that person, it's a man, they bring that man back to the city, and that man starts as a novice Pharisee. In fact, he's referred to as a Naaman, a Naaman, which it literally means like a faithful one, okay? Now there's these rules for a, <clears throat> there's these rules for a Naaman. A Naaman has to agree to give away a portion of his income. He's going to give away some of his possessions. Uh, there's rules about which homes he can go into. Like he can only go into the home of another person if that person is a Pharisee. And he can only share a table and eat dinner with certain people. And if that works, if, that, if the Naaman doesn't quit, then the Naaman can eventually rank up and kind of level up and become uh, a Haver. Now that that's a tricky word. I know a chaver. That literally means like a like a fellow or a member. Think of a of a chaver like a like a a Pharisee in residence. Okay, they're kind of like an a semi Pharisee. They're very close to being a Pharisee, but not quite. Now a chaver has very strict rules. In fact, much stricter than the rules for the Naaman. There's all these washing rules that they've got to practice. All these purity laws that have to be followed. Uh, a chaver has to be even more separated from the culture. And, and whereas uh, for the Naaman, uh, he's not allowed inside the home of a non-Pharisee, uh, a chaver kind of levels that up. And a chaver isn't even allowed to do business with someone who isn't a Pharisee. Like you can't go into their shop. You can't buy things from someone who isn't a Pharisee. You're only allowed to associate with Pharisees. And eventually, if you continue and you do a good job as a chaver, you rank up and you can become a full Pharisee and there's this great induction and initiation ceremony. And, 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 and just imagine, okay, like some of us have an, enough anxiety around evangelism when it just comes to sharing the gospel with somebody. Imagine if we thought that it's our job to convert people to a process like that. Like imagine if it's your, you thought it was your job to convert people to that sort of system. Just quick show of hands. How many of you think that you would make a good Pharisee? All right. How many of you think you'd make a good Pharisee? Some of you are thinking of that about answering on behalf of your spouse. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. So, some of you, 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 nobody here actually thinks that they'd make a good Pharisee. But how many of us think you would do well as an evangelist for the Pharisees? Yeah, nobody. Nobody. So interesting. Notice what Jesus says. You travel over land and sea to make a single convert. And when he becomes one, he becomes twice as much a son of hell as you are or twice as much a child of hell as you are. Do you see what's going on? They're converting people to religion, but not to a genuine relationship with God. 
they're making lots of Pharisees, but no, but no followers of God. They're, they are content to make these converts. They're making more and more, you know, more and more Pharisees, more and better Pharisees, but they're not making disciples. And that's a problem. So listen to this from Eugene Peterson in his message translation of this verse. He, I love what he says. He says, you're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees, you frauds. You go halfway around the world to make a convert, but once you get him, you make him into a replica of yourselves, double damned. Isn't that great? Now, that's not how it always was before Jesus. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God was on a mission, and so were his people. God was not about increasing the number of Pharisees. Israel was not out just to make converts to Israel. They were about... Uh, finding Jews and Gentiles and bringing them into a covenant with Yahweh. And that began back when he first called Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, which peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham? All peoples. Do you see that? God confirms it later in Genesis 22. He says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, which nations on earth will be blessed? All nations. All of them. Well, much later in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is sharing what is essentially the, the great commission of Israel. In chapter 42, God, uh, God speaks through Isaiah and says uh, to, to his people, Israel, he says, I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. A few chapters later, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servants to restore the, the, the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. They are to be a light not just for Israel, not just for the Israelites, but for the Gentiles. And how far will God's salvation reach? It'll reach to the ends of the earth. So all through the Old Testament, we see that God has been on mission. But you know, I think the greatest glimpse that we have of God's approach to mission actually comes from Jeremiah chapter 29 which we heard read uh, earlier. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, we have a set of instructions. It's actually a letter that Jeremiah was supposed to send to the people as, as Israel has just been conquered and they're about to be taken into the capital city of Babylon. And they're going to be there a while and they don't know it. Okay, but they're going to be there a while. And, and, and what God says there in this, in this passage, which we heard read, this is sort of God's design for how the faith will be shared. Like how, the, how Israel will, will multiply among the Gentiles. And, and as I see it, it involves three main rhythms. And I'll just tell you what those are. Three main rhythms. Number one, loving their neighbors. Number two, challenging their assumptions. And number three, modeling a better way. 
All right, so they're going to love their neighbors, they're going to challenge assumptions, and they're going to model a better way. So in the first rhythm, the, the Israelites are going to love the Babylonians. And that's important because when they go into exile, it's going to feel like a failure and a disaster and, a, and just this epic tragedy. And they're gonna, the people are going to say like, man, we can't make peace with the Babylonians. We can't possibly, you know, get comfortable here. And yet God says, go ahead and build a house. Go ahead, plant a garden. Stay a while. Go ahead, let your kids marry the Babylonians. In fact, God says, seek the prosperity of the city. Seek the prosperity of the city. What does that even mean? Well, it means this. It means things like vote in their elections shop at their stores, pay their taxes, pay for parking on the street, pray for the city. It means we're not going to spend our time in exile complaining all the time and and separating ourselves constantly. We are there to bless Babylon. And so we're going to treat them as friends and as equals. And And so God says, seek the good of the city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, you're not going to isolate yourselves from the people, okay? You're going to be present. You're going to be faithfully present and you're going to incarnate your faith. You're going to put flesh on God's word. And you're going to identify with the people of Babylon in such a way that what harms them harms you and what helps them helps you. And, And seeking your good is going to be seeking their good. That's how you're going to love your neighbor. That's what God is calling them to do while they're in Babylon. Well, there's another rhythm that God's people on mission are going to practice. It's they're going to challenge assumptions. They're going to challenge assumptions. So in this next part of the Jeremiah passage, God actually warns them that there are going to be teachers and prophets who come along from within God's people, like not from outside, but it's going to be like Israel's own prophets. And they're going to say things like like well-meaning things, like don't mix with the Babylonians. Don't shop at their stores. Are you, are you crazy? Don't pay taxes to them. Don't settle down and marry among them. Don't get comfortable because any day now, Messiah is going to come and we're going back to Jerusalem. And, and they're going to assume that it's wrong to hang out with the Babylonians. They're going to assume that, they're, that any minute... They're going back to Jerusalem. They're going to assume that God doesn't want his people to go through tough times. You see that? They have all these assumptions. God doesn't want us to associate with Babylonians. You crazy? And yet God says, don't listen to them. They're wrong. They're wrong. And that means that part of God's design for mission means that we are paying attention. and We're being discerning to what's going on around us. And sometimes discernment means that we're going to challenge our teachers and we're not going to believe everything that they say. We're going to test it, right? But sometimes being discerning also means thinking critically about what is going on in Babylon and thinking critically about the, the, the TV or the movies that we watch while we're in Babylon or thinking about the books that we read or the music and the news that we listen to. It means discerning that there's actually a worldview and there's an ideology that's embedded in these that they want us to adopt, but we're going to be discerning instead. And so whether it's coming from inside or outside God's people, sometimes we're going to, sometimes discernment means that we're going to say, 
Yeah, that's that's totally great. That's something actually that I can get behind. It glorifies God. It's good for our flourishing. I totally embrace that ideology. But sometimes being discerning means, you know, I've tested this against God's word. I've tested it against his spirit and, and the tradition. And, you know, I just, this is just not okay. It is not helpful. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for, it's not glorifying to God. So I just can't embrace this. And, you know, if we're not jerks about it, if we're good neighbors about it, and if we're already practicing the rhythm of loving our neighbors, something that might happen is that some people around us might realize that they've been treating their assumptions as though those assumptions are settled facts, as though it's true and it's non-negotiable. And they might realize, oh my gosh, all this thing that I assumed was a fact, it's actually just an assumption. And I need to challenge my assumptions too, just like these, just like God's people are. And you know what? They might change their minds too. And that would be a really good thing. Wouldn't that be a good thing if as we challenge assumptions, some of our neighbors learn to challenge their assumptions too? Of course, of course. Because as we shed bad assumptions, you know, we actually begin to be able to embrace more and more of a Christian worldview. And so challenging assumptions, that's a really good rhythm for God's people to practice while we're in exile. But a third one is this, we're going to model a better way. We're going to model a better way. Here, what I mean here is that this text, the Jeremiah text, ends with God's promise of a restoration. And it's going to happen when they seek him with their whole heart. Like for now, they'll wait and they'll seek him and they'll obey and they will pursue him in their, in their devotions and in their worship and in their lifestyles. They're going to pursue God with their whole heart. And from the point of view of a lot of people in Babylon, that's going to just look crazy. Like it's going to look just like bananas. They're going to say like, yo, what are you waiting for? What, what are you missing out on all the fun that we're having? Why don't you come and join us and do what we're doing? And what Israel didn't know is that it's going to be like 70 years before God fulfills this promise and brings them back to the promised land. Like it's going to be 70 years before the end of the exile and God's people are brought back to Jerusalem. I can imagine that was hard. I can imagine it was hard to wait that long. Imagine waiting on God for for 10 years for something. Imagine there's something that you want a whole lot something that you're desperate for, and you've been waiting on God, believing him, trusting him, believing he's going to do it, and it's been 10 years. Still waiting. Well, imagine it's 10 years in Babylon. No rescue, no restoration. The Babylonians are watching. They're wondering, what are these guys waiting for? Like, are they going to quit or what? But you don't. And and, and you because you don't quit... That impresses the Babylonians. They actually can't explain that. Well, what happens if you're waiting 40 years or 50 years or 60 years and and, and nothing happens? You still wait. You're waiting patiently. You're waiting faithfully. It's not, I'm saying it's easy to wait that long, but you wait and the people are baffled. And nobody in Babylon would blame you if you quit waiting after 69 years. Because by then your kids have kids. And, and, you know, you're still waiting and you haven't had the fulfillment or the answer to your promise. And then comes year 70 and it's the end of the exile and you go back. But after you're gone, the Babylonians will always remember those neighbors who waited 
They waited patiently with love and with generosity and with hospitality and with integrity and even wit and humor and character. And they changed this town. And yeah, we didn't agree with everything that they said. We didn't agree with everything that they believed. But man, we were sure glad that they were here. You know, Babylon can't explain that. They have no explanation for that, that patience and that lifestyle. They can't explain that unless our God is real and he is worth waiting for. They can't explain it unless God is the one true God after all. And you know, that is ancient mission. That's how God's people would make disciples. Not just converts. They're not just going to make converts. This isn't coercive. It's not manipulative or threatening. This is how mission is done, it seems, in the Old Testament. And, 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 and you know, what I would want to say here is if we pause for a minute, it's interesting because those three rhythms, loving our neighbor, challenging assumptions, modeling a better way, those, it seems to me, are like the job description of an ambassador for Christ. Now, we mentioned ambassadors earlier. Now, what's an ambassador? Let me illustrate it this way. An ambassador is a kind of messenger or, or a, a representative of another culture. Okay, An ambassador is somebody who is approached by their king and the king tells them, like, I've got an important appointment for you. I've got an important mission for you. I want you to go and offer my protection to those people over there in the other culture. You're going to, you're my person, you're my representative, you're my messenger, but you're to go to them and you're to let them know I love them and I'm watching out for them. Okay. Now, what an ambassador doesn't do is an ambassador doesn't arrive and on day one, get in front of thousands and thousands of people in a stadium and just lay out the whole plan. Okay, an ambassador leaves home, brings some of their stuff with them, and they move into this new culture and they put down roots. And their allegiance is still to the king, but the, but the ambassador, they might need to learn a new language or they might start wearing new clothes or they eat new foods and you know learn to embrace new kinds of music and art and, and, and entertainment and stuff like that. In other words, the ambassador identifies with a new culture. Okay, the, ambas- the ambassador incarnates the king's message. The ambassador like embodies the, the king and this king's kingdom. And what happens is that in time, maybe the neighbors are going to ask, hey, why don't you tell us where, we're, where you're from? Because this is fascinating. We're, we're impressed and fascinated by what we see. And they're going to gain a bit of insight into your life as an ambassador. And they're going to gain a bit of insight into your king and and the beliefs of your kingdom. And and some of them might even become loyal to your king as well. Well, that's what an ambassador does. You know, that's how Israel was meant to relate to Babylon. And in the same way, that's really how the Pharisees were supposed to relate to Rome. Instead, They traveled land and sea to make a single convert, and when they did, they made them twice as much a child of hell as they they were. Like instead of making, instead they saw it as, instead of making disciples, they saw it as their mission to grow the number of their fellow Pharisees. Do you see that? They're not making disciples of Jesus. They're not making followers of God. They're just multiplying the number of Pharisees in a culture. Well, that's not mission even if some people think that that's what an evangelist does. And it seems to me we could go so far as to say that the difference between the way of Jesus and the way of the Pharisees is like the difference between incarnation and colonialism. We've talked here about what colonialism looks like. You arrive and you put down 
you know, you, you set up a, a tiny little colony of, of your kingdom in a town and you expand it and you take over people and you force them and teach them how to practice the ways of your kingdom. And that instead of uh, honoring the culture that exists on the, in the place where you land, you instead turn it into a little colony of your kingdom and you convert people into that lifestyle and into that way of thinking and that ideology. Well, that's colonialism. And the difference between the way of Jesus and the way of the Pharisees is like the difference between incarnation and colonialism. And so the lesson that we need to take from this woe is that wherever the church makes the goal of evangelism about making more and better evangelicals, that has to stop. Okay, let me say that again. Wherever the church makes the goal of evangelism about making more and better evangelicals, that has got to stop. It's got to stop. And it actually can. It'll be good for us if we do. You know, it's interesting. The word evangelist only appears three times in Scripture. I don't know if you knew that or not. Three times the word evangelist appears in Scripture. And every time it's referring to a person who has a unique spiritual gift. We're not all evangelists, but we are all ambassadors for Christ. And, and once again, full respect to Billy Graham. Like, it's totally great if you are a gifted evangelist. God bless you. You uh, show up and you share the gospel with people. and you, Some of them you see maybe come to Jesus. And then you head off to the next town. And that's really great. There's a place for that. I believe that. It's just that in our time, in our culture, people actually need us to stay with them here in Babylon and not move on. They need us to put down roots and love our neighbor, whether that's at, at school or in the neighborhood or in the workplace or the marketplace. They need us to pay attention and, and not believe everything that we hear or read or see. You know, They need us to keep working and keep serving and seeking after God patiently, perseveringly. And in the church, you know, it seems to me ambassadors may not be as admired as a Billy Graham... You know, people may not put a poster of an ambassador up on their wall. People may not pay money to go hear an ambassador preach at a stadium. But, you know, that is what our culture needs. We need ambassadors. You know, yesterday a few of us came together and we were working outside in the garden that we've been putting together over the last few weeks and we cleaned up the flower beds and we cut some branches and we cleared away some brush and we built the raised beds that we're going to be able to plant some vegetables in. And, and over the course of the morning, so many neighbors came by to ask, what in the world are you guys doing? What is this all about? So let me show you as I close. This is a little bit of what an ambassador, being an ambassador looks like. First, there's this guy who told me he lives on Barton Street. I'll call him Joe. Joe asked what we're doing, and he, he rolled his eyes when I explained it. His, his attitude was kind of like, yeah, good luck. That'll last a week. So that's fine. Joe went his way, and that, that's fine. God bless him. God bless you, Joe, if you're out there. And then there was a man named Tom. Tom lives a little further up Main Street. Tom doesn't like how many people are using drugs these days out in the open. Like, instead of in private, instead of in the privacy of their own home, people are now out in the open on front porches and on storefronts smoking up and, and shooting up with, with drugs. And um, at first I thought Tom was just going to go off and complain about addicts in the city. But then Tom shared with me about his own experience as an addict 
at all kinds of churches. Tom's perspective is that if, if it's a good church, they host an alcoholic Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and they don't charge anything. But his experience is also that in Hamilton, a lot of the churches are, are no good. Like there's a lot of hypocritical churches. And he, the reason he says that is because you have to actually rent the space in order to have an AA meeting. Well, Tom shared that next week he's going to have been sober for 23 years. He'd never told anybody that outside of AA. And here he was telling me. And, and there was this other friend. I'll call her Brenda. Uh, Brenda moved here from Toronto just a week ago. And she moved here with her adult son. Just before that, Brenda's nephew was murdered in his home. He was shot in the head over a necklace. Brenda told me that even though they caught the killer, like they arrested him, they felt so unsafe in Toronto that they had to leave. And they came to Hamilton. They found an affordable apartment. And uh, here she is with me in front of this church. Okay. And she's sharing with me that she doesn't know anybody in Hamilton. She doesn't have anyone in Hamilton. She doesn't trust anyone in Hamilton. She can hardly sleep at night. Every time she hears a loud noise, she jumps. Um, they don't have anybody until yesterday. And she was so intrigued and moved by the garden project. She had so many questions. She's like, why, why would you give this away for free? And like, what, what if somebody takes too much? And, and is it okay if I come back to get some of this fruit and produce? Is it okay if I, is it, can I have some of it? She asked, like, am I supposed to join your church first? Do I have to become a member? She said, she had so many questions. She couldn't believe that we just wanted to bless her and bless our neighbors. She'd never seen anything like that before. And she had certainly never stopped to talk to church people on a street before. And now, Brenda knows that she has safe people. And she's got friends who care and know. We even know her by name. And, you know, I was, I was so blessed by those interactions. For, for me, it was, like, it was like a gift. And it, it occurred to me, 20 years ago, I would have gone away ashamed and beating myself up from, because, because in those conversations, I didn't mention sin. I didn't mention judgment. I didn't mention the cross or repentance or resurrection. And I would have been so embarrassed and ashamed and condemned myself because I failed as in my job as an evangelist. And you know, that would have been such a mistake. Just to be clear, there will be times for us to share about Jesus. I truly believe that and I do it. I think the Spirit makes those times known. But you know, the older that I get and the longer that I spend in Scripture, the more I realize that sometimes our timing isn't God's timing. Sometimes what we want to do isn't what our neighbors need from us. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes what we want to tell our neighbors isn't what they need to hear. And the church is the people who can settle and put down roots here in Babylon and love our neighbors anyway and listen and pray and wait. That is the work of an ambassador. And, and, and let's just see what he will do with it. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying 
that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.